Dave Wurtson, our Bible teacher, remembers a special day in Dallas when his friend, Coach Tom Landry, was honored. This Hall of Famer deserved this day, all of the applause and all of the honor. But Dave uses this contemporary celebration on the streets of Dallas to help us go back in time to the streets of Nazareth and then into a synagogue. We need to feel the expectation and the emotions in Nazareth when Jesus came to town. Unlike Tom Landry's Dallas, Jesus' hometown almost killed him. His synagogue declaration is recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. I just want you to think about the expectation of what you're supposed to do on Tom Landry Day in Dallas. And the basic idea of the day is for everyone to be proud of what we've done. You see, it's to be proud of our city. It's to be proud of what our team has done. You don't have coach days for a coach that lost every game he ever played, that never went to the Super Bowl. You don't have big citywide days for people like that. You see, the whole idea of a day is to express appreciation, and that's good. But I want you to also realize that underneath that, there's a sense that really builds us up because we say, we're successful. As a city, we are successful. We do well. Our team wins. You know, that's why in athletic contests, you know, the name of the game in athletics, if you want to be successful, is you've got to win. Because that builds people, people's ego. It makes them feel good. Nobody likes to go see the Rangers when they're losing, but 40,000 people go out there when they're winning. Why? Because it makes us feel good because we're a part of that. Now, let's suppose that Tom Landry got up there at Tom Landry Day and he expressed gratitude uh, you know, for what the city had done for him and for what had happened with the Cowboys. But then we went on and he said, you know, there's a real ache in my soul. Just look at all these skyscrapers around here. We're proud of those skyscrapers. But what's really happening in this city? What is the city genuinely living for? You know, I, I noticed on the way that as we were driving here to get ready for the parade, I, I drove through, through some sections in Dallas where people were really hungry and they were poor. And I'd like to change the focus of this day off all these gigantic edifices that we've built. And all the people from all over the world, they had a big international convention where they had people from all over the world. And what we're doing is we're patting Dallas on the back. Dallas is a great city. And all of a sudden someone said, but what is Dallas really like? And what I'm really concerned about on this day is I'm concerned about homes where there's terrible anger where people are so angry that they, can, that they, they actually beat on one another and, and their lives are being torn apart. And I'm concerned about a city where race relations is like a, a powder keg that's going to go off. Most of all, I'm concerned about needs deep within every one of our hearts. I'm not saying at all that that's exactly what Tom Landry should have done. That's not the point. I want to create in your heart a little bit of the feel for Jesus Christ. The more that we get into the life of Christ, which is what we're doing, and I want to share with you that the burden of my heart 
is that we as a body of believers genuinely meet Jesus Christ. I don't care that much anymore, you know, whether or not we build a big edifice and that's recognized all over evangelicalism and everyone will go, wow, you know, there's Midlothian Bible Church and there's, there's Liberty Church there in Lynchburg, Virginia and there's Grace Church and out there in the Valley of California. I really don't care that much about that anymore. I think that's a very good thing because I think the Lord would have judged me very much if that was my motivation for the ministry. The reason I don't care very much about that anymore is because the Lord is getting me into the fabric of life. And he's showing me that, that even a good culture like evangelicalism doesn't meet our needs. And in this series, as we've been getting into the life of Christ, the more that I get into his life, the more he astounds me. He's different from any man that you'll ever meet. Because it's all truth. There's no sham. There's no surface. There's no pretend. And it's so hard for us to receive that because we're so used to the pretend. We're so used to playing games with one another in our marriages, in our citywide relationships, in our school relationships, in our business relationships. We're so used to acting out parts that when somebody is just themselves, really themselves, and this person turns out to be totally loving, and yet also totally truthful. Knowing everything about us, that's tough on us. We want to run away. And what I'm trying to help us to do is please don't run. Because a lot of the frustration, a lot of the, the difficulty in your life, you know, all the way from immorality or drug abuse to pride and to just a basic gnawing attitude in your heart of things just aren't right. I just don't feel good. That whole spectrum of needs that's represented here can be met in this man called Jesus. What we're going to do in this series, and we're, we're coming out of Jerusalem, we're able to see how he interacted with an adulteress. We're now going to move into the, the first major chunk of his ministry among the people, among the normal everyday people, not the elites down in Jerusalem, not the people down there at the capital, but just people out in the rural areas, people just out in the countryside, people in Galilee. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4 because Dr. Luke chooses to take an event that possibly happened according to Mark 6 a little bit later in the ministry of Jesus, but Luke chooses to push it forward and we're going to treat it at this time as we begin Jesus' Galilean ministry because this incident and the way Jesus was treated in his hometown puts a summary over the way people react to Jesus. We're going to go through a year of ministry. We're going to see Jesus healing people. We're going to see him raising the dead. We're going to see him healing the blind people and the deaf and the cripples. We're going to hear him preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get involved in Jesus' ministry, but the reaction in Nazareth right at the very beginning sets the tone for how human hearts respond to him. This begins in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. And verses 14 and 15 act as kind of an introduction to this Galilean ministry. Jesus returned, that would be he returned from Jerusalem after walking through Samaria into Galilee. And he returned in the power of the Spirit. I don't think we need to remind ourselves that the only way that you and I as believers are going to have a ministry is in the power of the Spirit. 
There's nothing more agonizing than doing the Lord's work in your own power. There's nothing more liberating than doing it in the power of the Spirit. And the book of Acts picks up on this idea of the power of the Spirit, of God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us, enabling us to teach children, enabling us to minister to others, enabling us to encourage. And Jesus is our prime example of that. And so we carry out that ministry of the Spirit that was begun by Jesus in the power of the Spirit. We continue that. And that power of the Spirit is not only His miraculous power, but it's also, in Luke's thinking, and Luke Acts, it's also His ability to teach. The only way you can communicate spiritual realities is in the power of the Spirit. I realize the more that I get in and spend personal time with you, the more, from a human standpoint, I cringe at the kinds of things that can happen as we teach Sunday morning. Some of you, for example, hear me as a belligerent father. If I raise my voice high, then you're ready to, you know, to jump out of the plane. And that can be disconcerting. Some of the other people don't hear it at all. Because the truth of the matter is, a lot of you have been coming to church for years, all your life. Some of you went to church and it was incredibly boring. In other words, when you were a little kid, you really tried hard to pay attention to what the minister was saying. But by the time he scrambled through reading his notes, and by the times he read a few poems, you never could figure out what he was saying. So you're programmed. In other words, you've had maybe 20 years of, I really tried hard to understand what was going on, and I never could figure it out, so I've quit. And I use the teaching time in a church service to do other things. And so I know that some of that happens. Some of the real spiritual ones do come with incredibly hungry hearts and the Spirit is really wide open in your life and you're ready to hear and to listen, and I am as well. And a beautiful thing can happen. But what I'm saying is that I used to feel if I did it right and if we used the right stories and if I made the Word of God clear that something would happen and something would happen beautifully because of the skill that the Lord had given me. And what the Lord has been reminding me of and what's true in this passage right here is it's only in the power of the Spirit. And I would just trust that the Holy Spirit would open your heart because I think as you open your heart that the Lord can do incredible things. He can nurture you. He can comfort you. He can convict you and yet not have you run away from that conviction. All kinds of, of vital spiritual realities can happen if it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the supreme example of a teacher that was controlled by the power of the Spirit. I would definitely ask you for prayer for me. Because what I found out in doing interaction with people, it's very easy for a minister to do things that are harmful. You see, I know when I'm preaching, when I go over a line and when it starts to be day. And the Spirit kind of, it's like He pulls the reins back in. And what you should pray is that I'll be real sensitive to those reins. And that I'll let Him tug and I'll let Him take us where He wants us to go. There's not restriction in that. There's beautiful freedom in that. And as a congregation begins to pray for the power of the Spirit to move, then it enhances the power of the teaching and it opens the receptivity in all of our hearts and beautiful spiritual realities can happen in our lives. Jesus is the one that began the church period 
with that kind of a teaching gift that was so empowered by the Holy Spirit. He did a lot of what we're doing here. He taught in synagogues and everyone praised him. And you can just see him. I can just see, you know, here he is in his early 30s. And he begins to speak in all the different synagogues. And he becomes very popular. That's the way it is with young preachers. I have a young friend that came to the Dallas area. He'd had a few years of experience, came to Dallas. And he was the young preacher on the block. And everybody flocked. Their church grew by 150 families in about one year. And boy, he was riding on a kite, you know, just riding high. Everyone was praising. But after about five years of ministry, things turned around the other way. And it crucified him. It destroyed him. It took him out of the ministry for a time. Praise God. The power of the Spirit by grace renewed him. And he's looking forward to getting back into it again. The problem was the praise. Jesus is an incredible man. He's never totally controlled and captured by the praise. You know, and that's something that all of us need to be aware of. You see, Jesus had integrity. And when you're captured by praise, you don't have integrity. Because you start being controlled by your fans instead of being controlled by the truth. And Jesus, as his popularity started spreading like, a, like a, a prairie fire across Galilee, as we go through his ministry, we're going to find him never basking in the sunlight, never doing what people want, what people expect of him. He just continues being Jesus. And that happens to be the most beautiful man, the most truthful man, the most loving man that ever lived. What we have in verse 16 is kind of a, a snapshot of what Jesus did in this itinerant ministry of talking in the synagogues. He went to Nazareth. That's where Jesus was raised. We know that from Luke chapter 2. It was kind of a rough town. There was a Roman garrison there, but Jesus went back to his hometown. And that's why we could entitle the message, Jesus Christ Day in Nazareth. The hometown boy comes home. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. And as was his custom, he stood up to read. Probably some of you are interested in what was a synagogue service like? Well, I wouldn't go to the stake that I can reproduce exactly what a synagogue service was like because the evidence that we have comes primarily from the second century and onwards. But there's some pretty good historical indices that would show that things really didn't change that much. So if you all were a good Jewish audience today in Nazareth, what you would have done, you would have come in and the girls would have separated from the fellows. There would be a, one side of the synagogue and you should picture kind of a square building with kind of seats around the edges of the building and up in the front of that building is the holy place where the scrolls are kept, okay? So the girls sit on one side, the fellows sit on the other and as you come in and sit down, the very first thing you would do is you would have private prayer by the worshipers on entering the building. In other words, as everyone comes into the synagogue, they would sit on their respective sides, and then they would pray. There would be a time of private prayer. Second of all, they, the service would begin with a public confession of faith. Shema Yitzariel Adonai Elohim Echad. Say what? Hear, O Israel. Shema Yitzrael. Hear, O Israel. The Lord... Our God, Eloheinu Echad, is one. And they would go on. In other words, the whole audience together 
would quote, would quote Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and also very possibly Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. And those passages remind us that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts because he's totally unique. And they would begin their service with a whole congregation in unison expressing to God his uniqueness and their devotion to him and their love for him and their rejection of idols. Then they would have a time of prayer and they had a series of prayers they would go through. One of them was called the 18 benedictions and it was kind of a, a recitation where the reader would read a blessing, the congregation would respond. Then they would pray for things generally. They would pray for their nation. They would pray for the government. They would pray for general needs within their community. And then they would pray for their individual needs. Give us this day our daily bread. They would have a time of general prayer and then of personal prayer. By the way, the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11 follows that pattern. You begin by focusing on God and worshiping and adoring Him. And then you move down and, and you don't pray, give us this day our daily bread, our personal needs, until about halfway through the prayer. And then you also end by asking for forgiveness. That, Jesus was following a very common pattern of Jewish prayer. And it's a good pattern for us to grow in and learn in as well. It's not a legal thing because this order of service isn't in the Bible. But it gives us a feel for the, for the kind of setting in which we're going to hear Jesus preach. After that, there would be a scripture reading. They would read a portion of the Pentateuch. They read some of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then they would also read some of the prophets, which would include the Psalms and the wisdom literature, as well as what we would think of as the prophets. In the Jewish synagogue, we know from later that they had this organized, that you would read through the entire Old Testament scripture, at least the Torah, every year. And then every so many years, you'd read through the whole Old Testament so that the whole congregation was reading the Word of God and they were exposed to the entire counsel of God. That's why the Jewish people were so knowledgeable about their Holy Scriptures. And we need to recapture some of that. Very, very important to develop that public reading of the Word. In fact, Paul told Timothy to a young preacher, he said, pay attention to the public reading of the word. So they would have the reading from the Torah, the reading from the prophets, and then they would have a prayer, and then they would have a sermon. Now, the purpose of that sermon might sound familiar. The purpose of their sermon was to be interesting, to make the scriptural text interesting, and to take some of the formality out of it. So they would often use parables, stories, illustrations, ethical sayings. In fact, Jesus... Is the, is the ultimate teacher along those kinds of lines. And, and you always have Jesus telling a parable, telling a story, using a, a very uh, interesting, um, ironic kind of a statement. That's picking up on the synagogue teachers who would take the scriptural text and build on that to make it live for the audience at that particular time. So the kids would understand it, so mom and dad would be able to understand it, so the young people could really get into it. Then they would close with prayer. But this synagogue service on this day was especially strategic. In his hometown, it's Jesus Christ's day in Nazareth. And Jesus Christ went to the synagogue as a boy. It was his custom. Moms and dads, that should teach us something. One of the things 
that will happen as your family begins to develop is, I don't really want to go. I don't really want to go to church. You're pumping it down my throat. And what can easily happen in our families is that we get out of some of the traditions. Now, taking your kids to a morgue on Sunday, I wouldn't suggest. In other words, if you just by ritual take your children and there's no life in it, there's no exposure of the living Word of God, there's no real teaching that will build their life and cause them to fall in love with Christ, don't take them to a religious morgue. When one of my young people comes and says, I don't think I really want to go to church anymore. I say, you want to pay your own bills? You want to live in your own apartment? You see, if you're going to live under my roof, then that's one of the traditions of our family. That's real important. Jesus followed that out. You see, it's not, it's not order and discipline and traditions that wipe us out. It's unreality. In fact, one of the biggest things that wipes us out, you see, if I came and preached to you on Sunday morning, but when I'm home Sunday night, I cuss the living daylights out of Jonathan or Joel, they're not going to respond very well. If they see me beat the living daylights out of Mary, and then I come in here and, and talk about how great our relationship is and how warm and relational we are, they are going to rebel. You see, if there's not integrity all the way through, there's not honesty. Kids really do hate that. But they don't hate church. They don't hate the Bible. In fact, young people, in a lot of ways, are at a, at a pristine enthusiasm for the Word. If you let them get in it, if you let them ask the questions, you, you're not threatened by their questions. They want to know the answers. A lot of them are hungry for it, but they're hungry for reality. Jesus went to synagogue. And so when the hometown boy came home. It was his custom. He'd been there many times before. They said before the service, Jesus, would you read the scripture? Would you especially read the prophet section of the scripture? So Jesus got up, turned to Isaiah 61, and that's where we pick up the service. It said, and he stood up to read. They would stand up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, you can picture like one of the Qumran scrolls, he unrolled it and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. How's the message going so far? That's a good news message, isn't it? He's going to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll up. I can't do that with my Bible gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fast on him. It's really dramatic at this point. You can just see him read the scripture as only Jesus could read it, the one who authored it. And then there's silence as he rolls the scroll up. And everyone, there's that silence of anticipation. And then he says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thud. This is the day. Now, if you turn back to Isaiah 61, let's turn back there so you'll know the context. Isaiah chapter 61, I want you just to look at something in Isaiah 61 because Jesus stopped at a very significant place. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for those in prison, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we could get in, there are a, a few textual differences from the quote in Luke 4 and here, but up to now, nothing's really that different. Nothing that's just earth-shaking. Some of the little bit different feel is the idea of release, which Luke stresses a little bit heavier on the idea of forgiveness for us. But then the Lord stops. The Lord didn't quote the next verse, which was, and the day of vengeance of our God. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, but he stopped, didn't say the day of vengeance of our God. Instead, he stopped right there. And then he said, this day is now. Now, what is Jesus saying? You know what he's saying? Now, you've got to hear me. Because from interacting with a lot of people, I think the hardest thing to get people to believe in their hearts, and I find this true in my own heart, the hardest thing to get people to believe in my heart is that God is favorable towards me. I ask people, if you were to picture God in your mind, what does he look like? What's he doing? And a whole lot of people, it's kind of like this. You know, kind of like this. And there's, there's this terrible thud in their heart. I find that true in my own heart. I was raised with a whole lot of that. Boy, let's get out and work harder. You got to be pleading the Lord. He gave his life on Calvary for you. What have you done for him? Anybody heard preaching like that? A lot of us have. You ever stop and think about that? Compare what Jesus did for you on Calvary with anything that you do. What could you do that could ever measure up to that? It's impossible. That's the point of it. You can't die on Calvary like he did. You can never earn it. You can only go to the cross with him and let his life become your life. You can do that. But you can't earn favor. You can't win his favor. You know why? Because you already have it. God the Father in this present time of grace. Now, this will change in the tribulation period. In this present time of grace, God the Father is being patient. He's being long-suffering because Jesus said in Nazareth, Today, today is the time of accepting God's favor. Now, what did Jesus talk about? Who was going to accept God's favor? Well, his message was, it was good news for the poor. How many of you feel like you're poor? A lot of us do, right? Have you ever felt like you were poor? Now, if somebody has good news for the poor, how do you feel about a person that brings good news for the poor? Ray tells me that he went into a country western store because I won't tell you why he needed another pair of jeans, but you can guess, in the middle of the day. And the guy said, well, we're having a drawing. Why don't you put your name in his Ray says, no, I never win a thing. The only thing I ever got free was my salvation. The guy said, well, I'll just put your name in. Well, he won. A couple days later, the next day, they called him up and said, you need to come down. You won. Well, Ray wasn't going, oh, man, the worst thing in the world that, that happened to me. Man alive, I got a whole bunch of clothes free of charge from a country western guy. Man, Ray was exuberant, and I was coveting, saying, why didn't that happen to me? <laughs> See, when somebody proclaims good news to the poor, it's exciting. 
You know what, what it isn't good news to the poor? If you're rich, and I say everybody in church got together, and we decided to give you a turkey dinner, we wanted you to have it because we really felt that you had some needs. If you have more turkey than you want, and you feel like you can get your own turkey, you're going to throw the turkey right back in my face and keep your own turkey turkey. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? In order to receive good news for the poor, you've got to admit that you're poor. And that's where the catch is. Second of all, he says, release, proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Man, if I could have gone into Huntsville and said, this afternoon when we leave, you can all leave with us. It would have been good news. But man, if I tell you, you prisoners, you need to be free. You go, I'm not a prisoner. I'm an American. I'm free. I'm a slave to no man. You see, in order to, for it to be to, for release, to be good news, you got to admit that you're a prisoner. So Jesus' good news is good news for people that will admit that they're poor, that they'll admit that they're prisoners. And he goes on and talks about release for the oppressed. I think we have some more candidates. Are anybody oppressed? Sure, I think we'll admit that. But Jesus is the one that comes and, it, and says, admit that you're oppressed. And he goes on and says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what is this message? This is the message. You know, Jesus Christ knows every single detail of my life and of your life. Every single one. He knows all the things we've done. None of us really know everything we've done. We've forgotten a lot of bad things we've done. In fact, some of us have forgotten and we're scared to death about what we've forgotten. Because it's really hurting us. You see, as you start to look inside, our culture is really strong on taking a really strong look inside. The problem is, as you take a good strong look inside, if you look on one side, you see the image of God, it's pretty good. You know, you see a person that has value, that can think, that can feel, that can decide, that can make decisions, that can do good things. But if you take a look at the other side, there's some wickedness. There's some desires down in that tank. You say, man, alive, where did that ever come from? And what almost all of us do at that point is we run away because we don't want to admit that we're poor. You see, there's churches all over America that are being built on, you're okay. You're good people. We, we have nice dresses. We drive nice clothes. We have nice entertainment. I mean, we've got churches all over America. We have more people going to church than probably ever in the history of the United States. And yet whole cities and towns are coming unglued. The whole Christian community is plagued by incest and immorality, thievery. I know an elder in a major evangelical church. My brother gave a message on the Psalms. One of the Psalms that spoke about the fact that God could forgive us for anything, like Psalm 51. And this elder that had been an elder in that church for many, many years was there at that Wednesday night service because he was a good Christian even there on Wednesday night. And he left that service, and he went back to his home and went out into the country, and he committed suicide because he had embezzled funds 
and he couldn't open up about it because it would destroy him. And there was a man, you see, he faced what was going on inside because sometimes life catches up with us and we all have to face what's going on inside. You see, when you really face what's going on inside, you know what happens? Satan tells a dastardly lie. And I hear him telling this lie again and again and again. You see, what Satan tells you, if you really look inside and you see the wickedness that's there, you are so bad. You are such a hopeless case. There is no victory in store for you. Life is endless. There's no acceptable year. You might as well end it all. That's the, that's the ultimate lie that Satan can tell. You say, why, Dave? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing what's inside of my heart and yours, says, David, and he says to every one of you, you're favored by God. God loves you. He has hope for you. He, he adores you. Because I have come. Jesus is saying, I have come. Today is not the day of vengeance. Today is not the day of justice. Today is not the day of God's anger. Today is the day of grace. And that's what grace is. Grace is that miracle of joy when you look at the worst and realize you deserve the worst and the ultimate king of the universe says no. I love you. Now, how do people react to that? When I teach an audience like that, how do you react to that? Well, let's look at how his hometown reacted. Look what his hometown did. All spoke well of him. That's usually the way it begins out. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's sons, they asked? Jesus said to them. Now, here's what's going on. A lot of, you know, praise at first. And they're saying, man, how in the world does someone that was just raised by a carpenter teach like this? little bit of hometown pride going on here. You know, man, I used to change that kid's diapers. Now, how could he have anything to say? A little bit of that in there. Notice how Jesus responds to this titter. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Seraphath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now what is Jesus saying? Jesus, first of all, has x-ray insight into how they're responding to him. Their first response is, this is a hometown boy. What does he have to say? You know where we get a little bit of that? You see, when you minister with people over the years, what I want us to do, I want us to get, get by resistance. You see, as we teach week after week, it's easy to say, just wait. Just wait. I can hardly wait. Till they really face a problem. Then they're going to find out. You know, I, I know what David and Mary were like when they first got here. I remember when Jonathan would run around all over the church and had no control over him at all. You know, what do they think they have to tell us? I'm just teething you a little bit. But those are resistance. When I speak to you week after week, I'm sitting where you're sitting. This is the holy word of God. It doesn't make any difference what I think, what I believe, 
only as it lines up with the Word of God. And be very, very alert. I have to be alert to my own heart. When I sit and listen, because of the training that I have, it's very easy for me to critique a guy that's speaking to me or when a woman is teaching. It's very easy for me just to sit there and critique. And sometimes God has to give me a good stern look because he accepts me and says, David, let me talk to you. Open your heart to me. You're prideful. And I think that's something that we should really pray. That's what Nazareth didn't have that day. That's what the hometown crowd didn't have. Their pride was hurt. You see, when a hometown boy that grows up among you becomes someone that has words of life to give, there's resistance in that. As we see that teacher mature and as they develop, And that's what Jesus faced in Nazareth. And sadly, his hometown hardened their heart because of that. And because I love you, please don't do that. Pray that I will not do that. We're all susceptible to that hardened, calloused, closed heart. The second thing that Jesus did, and and this is a little bit hard to catch maybe, although I think a lot of you are already into it. The other attitude that Jesus picked up on was the pride of the hometown Jewish nationalism. You see, Jesus just told them that he had a message for the poor. He had a message for the prisoners. He had a message for the oppressed. The tragedy was that nobody in the synagogue of Nazareth, the majority, did not believe they were poor. They did not believe that they were prisoners. They did not believe that they were oppressed. And therefore, they didn't believe that they needed Jesus. You know why? Because they were still playing their game. Instead of opening their hearts to receive the truth because they knew the poverty in their heart, they were hardening themselves in their own self-righteousness. And Jesus did something very hard. He reminded them that even in the Old Testament before the day of grace, that God the Father in a time of poverty and famine in Israel, when all the kingdom of Israel was suffering because there wasn't any food, that God didn't feed most of the people because they were rebelling against him. The reason there was a famine in the days of Elijah is because of wicked Ahab and Jezebel and all the people's eyes were focused on Baal and they were worshiping materialism and immorality in themselves. So what did God do? He sent his prophet way up north to Sidon, between Tyre and Sidon to Seraphath. And that's where the miracle happened. And then he told the story going to the next prophet, Elisha, of how Naaman the Syrian, the proud Syrian general, came down because of a humble servant captive girl, Israelite girl. And Naaman came down and at first he was repulsed by the words of Elisha saying, you need to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is a dirty river. It's a muddy river. Only a few places up north by the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's acceptable. But most of its, its winding journey through that very deep ravine is muddy and filthy and everything else. And Naaman says, I'm not getting in that dirty river. I'm going to go back up to my own rivers. And his servant said this, Naaman, if God would have asked you, if the prophet would have asked you to do a glorious thing, like to go out and win a great victory, would you have not done that? Why won't you do the simple thing, the humble thing? 
And for once a general, maybe one of the first times in all of history, for once a general listened to his men who loved him. And that proud Syrian general stripped off his general's insignias and got down into a dirty, muddy river. And seven times he went down. And on the seventh time, he was healed. You see, he had to take off all the clothes. And all of his army knew then that he had leprosy. You see, all of his army knew that he was sick. And he had to wade out into a muddy river. And he had to obey the command of the Lord. And when he came up the seventh time, he was clean, just like a baby. That's the whole story of the word of God. And Jesus knew the essence of that reality more than anyone that's ever lived. And the people of Nazareth could not take off their clothes. They could not reveal what was really inside. They wouldn't face it themselves. They wouldn't allow others to see. They would never admit that they were poor, that they were prisoners, and therefore they never opened their heart to receive the Savior. Instead, they kept all their pride on and took Jesus to a hill, and they were prepared to stone him as a false prophet. But it was not time. But that threat of execution, that threat of the cross, Dr. Luke confronts us right from the very beginning. As you walk through life, all of us will do one of two things with Jesus. We'll either be like Naaman, the Syrian general, take off our clothes and admit, I've got leprosy. That we're poor, that we're oppressed, that we're a people in need. But instead of seeing that and committing suicide, because it's so bad, we'll listen to the Lord say, I know you. I know you, everything about you, but it's the year of the Lord's favor. You've won. You're loved by the Father. Please believe me. And slowly but surely, that acceptance by Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of Calvary becomes a seed in your heart which over a lifetime can grow into a Christ-like character. But a lot of others will keep their general's clothes on keep their pride intact, and they're going to join the crowd that yells, crucify him, crucify him. He saved others, let him save himself. I trust with all my heart, as you're hearing me, that you've got that openness in your life. I'm more convinced than ever that though the culture of church, though all the ritual of church, though all the formulas of evangelicalism will not work, I'm more convinced than ever that the invisible Christ as the living glorified Lord through his holy word can totally transform your life and mine. Let's turn away from the hometown rejection and let's be like many humble people in Galilee that threw their arms open to the Savior and wondrously worshipped him, joyously received him. I trust with all my heart You'll recognize you're poor, you're oppressed, you're a prisoner. But in him, you become wealthy, free, the heir of the grace of life forever and ever. I thank you, Lord, for the strength that you've given. Oh, Father, I just thank you for 
the miracle, it truly is a miracle that people all over the world are still gathering together just like people gathered in the synagogues of old and they're still listening to the words of the Savior. Father, I'm thankful that their responses in many synagogues was not rejection and stoning. Instead, it was joyous acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's a very dominant spirit. And I'd ask you, Lord, that the way that your scripture is taught and the openness that we have to hear the words of Jesus would do some healing, some deliverance, that you would bring comfort, that you would help every one of your precious children to enter into the joyous freedom of the children of God until we all can join in that heavenly chorus and sing, Worthy the Lamb that was slain. Father, if someone doesn't know the Savior in a personal way, I pray that our talk together today would stimulate them to ask more questions and to find the answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.